This is an episode unlike any other we've done for a couple of reasons. The first, it was in front of a live audience as part of the uh, Philadelphia Podcast Festival. And second, because it's Ben Franklin. Uh, we went into this thinking we were going to hang out and talk to a guy who uh, actually plays the role of Ben Franklin, but five minutes in, we realized this guy is Ben Franklin. So we think you'll enjoy it. It's pretty fun. You'll definitely learn a thing or two about Ben Franklin that uh, I'll bet you never learned in history class. And if history was this fun, uh, we'd all know a lot more. Follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all as the Philly Blunt. And don't forget to review us, rate us, and subscribe. All that helps other people find us, puts us up in the charts, and all that good stuff. So enjoy this very unique and entertaining and an educational interview with uh, Philly's most famous resident, Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome uh, to uh, the Philly Blunt. My name's Johnny Goodtimes, and we are excited to be doing our first ever live show, this time at the National Liberty Museum as part of Philly PodFest. Uh, we're going to rattle off some sponsors right up front, and then we are going to introduce you uh, to our exciting guest for the afternoon. Uh, a couple of uh, sponsors uh, up front, Indy Hall's podcast, Junto, Tattooed Mom, the National Liberty Museum, the World Cafe Live, New Media Touring, Fireball Printing, Everything is Awesome Podcast, OB Media, Philly Banner Express, Tea House Screen Printing, Bridge Set Sound, and the Philadelphia Podcasting Society. So, ladies and gentlemen, we are excited to bring on to the show a printer, author, political activist, politician, Freemason, postmaster, scientist, inventor, humorist, diplomat, chess enthusiast, and former linebacker for the Philadelphia Eagles, Mr. Benjamin Franklin. Yeah! Woo! I think so. Bring it up a little bit closer to your mouth, Ben. I know this is a... You've never worked with one of these before, so yes. Yo, yo, yeah, yo, this is... Yo, 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 yo. But beyond that, beyond politician, I, I accept all of those accolades. All right, fair enough. I never really liked that title. Right. Why is, why is that, Ben? Oh, politicians have connotations of, mm. um, you know, self-interest mm. and um, nepotism and mm. all the things I have tried to fight. Did you notice on the first name on your list of um, sponsors was Indy Hall's podcast, Junto? And I don't know what most of that means, but I know <laughs> that the Junto is the organization that I founded, one of my very first. Mm. And I'm sure all of you gentlemen... Studied Latin. Yeah, of course. Of course. Of course. I mean, you know. Yeah. Junto means fraternity, brotherhood, just as we stand here today, um, edifying, educating. That is a junto. We are a junto. Yes. All right. Well, Hunter is our junto. I'm going to show off. Yeah. I imagine it's still around yeah. after all. All right. All right. But we were going to call it the Philly Junto, and yeah, we yeah. just changed so. it to Philly Blunt last yeah, minute. Yeah. Yeah. I have to tell you, gentlemen, it is the name of your um, your publication. I'm not sure how exactly this is. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I assume it's some sort of mass communication, but it's the name of it that really um, attracted me to it because I have always considered, first of all, I think um, we always shortened the name of Philadelphia to Philla. And I think calling it Philly is very clever. Um, I would not have thought of that. Um, it gives it a certain... 
odious. It's, it's poetic. Sure, I sure. I really like that. Philly. Um, but I, I, you know, people think that the name Franklin means that we're Frankish, that we're French. That could not be further from the truth. Franklin, as my father always told me, refers to the fact that we are Frank. We are honest. We are open people. I will try to be as open as possible. We are, in other words... Blunt. Blunt. Yes. Sure. That, you you are me. Once again, you are yes. a junto of honest-speaking, blunt people. We are you blunt are Frank. It's like he was in our creative meeting when we were yeah. good dogs yeah. trying to plan this out. He was right there this with is, us the whole time. everything I we've been talking about. Yeah. Right, so right, right. So you mentioned your father. You were born, you were one of 17 children. So rather rather large family. And uh, let's start at the beginning. You made the mistake well, of... The, some of the children, I mean, my sister um, Elizabeth <laughs> is 26 years older than me. Okay. She was the eldest. And so she was already out of the house. So yes, all told, my father had 17 children. Um, there were nine children living in the house when I was a boy. Mm. Uh, and my parents. So there were 11 of us in the house when I was a boy. And what, what order do you yeah. fall in? I have nine older brothers, mm. some of whom had passed already by mm. the time I was born. I have seven sisters, mm. five of whom are older, mm. all of whom had lived. My two younger sisters, Lydia and Jane, are very close. We've mm. stayed very close and both had very long lives. Mm. Um, but, um, but I am the 10th son, or the last son, of a last son, mm. my father Josiah had many older brothers, mm. of a last son for six generations. And as the last son often inherits nothing, I had very low expectations as a boy. Um, and fortunately, no one else had very high expectations for me as well. Uh, so uh, you, Man, they had that all wrong. Huh? Yeah. So uh, you made the mistake of being born in Boston. Oh, uh, which, uh, yes, which you, you, you made sure to correct as soon as the opportunity arose. But, you know, I really, I've always been really recharged by the um, Boston manner, the Boston accent. Uh, Boston has many um, problems, and, and, and as I became older, as I entered my teen years and started to work at 11 and 12 years old, I started to see the problems of Boston, big walls. One of them being it. child labor. Well, no, no. Well, you were okay. You, don't work <laughs> you quit school when you were what ten? Oh, no, I started working my boys when they were very young. Um, but um, no, no, it was the um, la it was it was all very single minded. If you weren't, you know, a Puritan, you could get. Um, you could get you. You have a you have a small child <laughs> gripping on you. You have a child. death grip. Slowly choking me. Keep it together, Ben. No one can see this on a podcast. This is part of the you show. Just we just rolled with it. it. You midway, midway through the interview, we test his feats of strength. I think it's wonderful. No, it's not distracting at all. What were we? Um, oh no! But I loved growing up in Boston. When I was six or seven years old, we moved to Mill Street, and there was a large pond, the Mill Street Pond, and I spent all my time in and out of the pond and building dams and jumping onto boats. It was a wonderful childhood. What did I did not know that they were executing witches or or that or or, um, or that people of different religions were not allowed in, and the wall, the city was protected by walls. I had no idea. I had nothing else to go by. I had a lovely childhood. When I finally came to Philadelphia and saw that there mm. was a city that no witches were executed and that any religion could be practiced and that there was far more freedom than had existed, um, it opened my eyes to new ideas, but I didn't know when I was a child that I lived in a terrible place. Did it take a lot of work to lose that horrible accent? There's no remnants of it at all. Boston mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I lived in, in, in London for 14 years and um, I have the benefit of having no education whatsoever. So I made my own way. So whatever um, form of 
accent, um, speech that I have is purely self-created. I borrowed a lot of it from um, how I imagined Jonathan Swift would sound. I would read a lot of Jonathan Swift and Daniel Defoe, and I would read um, little essays and stories out loud, and I imagined the Spectator magazine, and this is how I, I created my own voice. <laughs> so your grandparents immigrated here when Charles I started persecuting Protestants. No, uh, my father. Oh, your father. My mother was born in Nantucket. Okay. Abaya. Okay. My mother, Abaya, is Josiah's second wife. All right, well, we now live in a country right. where a large segment of the population thinks we take in too many immigrants. As the son of an immigrant, wanted to know what your thoughts are on immigration. Well, I'm not sure I exactly, how could we possibly take in too Im many immigrants? Our country is vast and only growing. I imagine our borders stretching far beyond the Alleghenies, far beyond um, the Va Ohio Valley. Um, our neighbors to the west, the Iroquois, have found um, elements of peace with us. Um, no, I say more the merrier. We need, um, we need to attract. You know, I spent many years in, um, in Europe and I've traveled quite a bit. And um, one thing that America is not lacking is space. I think we have plenty of space for everyone. Mm -hmm. And to hear from my uh, fellow countrymen, it will only get larger. Mm -hmm. So no, I can't imagine why anyone would want to close off um, those from other places. Well, come. funny story. <laughs> it's actually not that funny. Uh, it's actually not that funny. <laughs> That's very good. You have an you had an illegitimate son, William. And a oh, daughter. Really, you're not even just going right to it, is that? Yeah, uh, just going right into fine. it. That's yeah. fine, I see. It's uh, scurrilous. Sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of, we're going straight for the scandal. Enough That's of fine. the uh, politics. Uh, yes, my son, William. So you had a daughter with your wife, Deborah Reed. What was your home life like? Well, I had two sons. My um, other son, Francis, uh, died very young at the age of four. Um, what was my home life? Oh, I'll tell you a wonderful story. It's not about my son, William, but it is about my wife. My wife was an extremely industrious, um, intelligent woman, better at mathematics, perhaps, than I are. Account she always kept the accounting of our office. And when, we would, when I first started to work, I had a small contract with the Pennsylvania Assembly doing some uh, deeds and printing some things, but I didn't have very much work. But we would go into our printing house down on 2nd Street every day and my wife would come every day and she would keep the books and there were many months when her selling of stationery and helping to make paper and uh, sell soap really kept us going and every day she would leave the printing office early to go back to make our midday sup in my time we eat a very large meal in the middle of the day around two or three o'clock and I would come a bit later, and there would be a meal waiting for us. And we would, in those early days when our children were young, um, we would eat at this uh, small pine table. Each of us had a, 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 you know, a wooden bowl with a pewter spoon, and whatever our midday sup would be served into that wooden bowl with the pewter spoon. One day I come home from work, and there in my place um, is a porcelain bowl with a silver spoon. And I say to Deborah, uh, Debbie, um, what is this? And she said, Ben, you have been working so hard, and you may not realize it, but we have been doing very well. And in fact, your business is increasing, and I think you should eat as well as any of the finest citizens of this city. And so I have given you this porcelain bowl 
and this silver spoon. Is that not delightful? Very much so. No, it is not. <laughs> it is absolutely not. Because what am, am I going to be the sort of young husband who is eating out of a porcelain bowl with a silver spoon? My, my wife is sitting across from me with a wooden bowl right, and a right. pewter spoon. Right, no, right. of course, immediately I said to her, darling, you must get one for yourself or take mine. And she said, really, are you sure? And I said, yes. And then the next thing you know, we have 10 porcelain bowls. Now we need the chargers and you can't serve 10 porcelain bowls on a small pine table. So now we need a large oak table. Essentially, in buying me that small gift, she had opened herself up to our um, lines of credit. Mm -hmm. And soon we would have a large dining room with an enormous set of and hosting dinner parties, all because of that nice, sweet gift that she gave me. Wives can be very manipulative. Can, can, I, ask, can I ask, was that the, uh, the impetus for writing the advice to a young man on the choice of a mistress in No, 745? no, that came much later. Um, that was, no, my advice to a young man on the choice of a I mean, mistress. there's some nice ones. Thank you. It was actually after my um, wife had passed. <laughs> I was in France, and I was, my wife had passed, and I had inv invited a number of young French women, not that young, to, um, to be the second mistress. Franklin and I was turned down over and over again and I was talking to a young man and I said and he's and I said you should have a wife and he said um, I shall never marry and I told him and this is what people always forget I told him as I began my essay a man is like one half of a scissors incomplete without his pair however if one chooses, <laughs> if one chooses to not have a wife, then in choosing a mistress, one should consider a woman older or the same age as you, because you don't want to be walking around the street with a young girl. People will it will affect your reputation. I think my favorite uh, reason was the last one when you said, "Lastly, they're just so, so grateful. grateful." Yes, it's true. It's true. Well, an older woman, um, and I remember, I was well into my seventies when I wrote that essay, and I no longer gave a fuck. But um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Are you? No, nah, fucking I'm say sorry, whatever. He's not paying attention, it. fortunately. <laughs> um, but it, I, I was, as I say, I was in my seventies, and I was well established. And is that, is that about the same time you sent the letter to the the Royal Academy? entitled Fart Proudly? Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I have a, we've been studying, I've become friends with a gentleman named Joseph Priestley, and Joseph Priestley has been studying the natural gases, and we've discovered that we are not living within the ether, but in fact, there are chemicals around us, and as I had um, been a great fan of chemistry and had hired Benjamin Rush, the first chemistry professor at my college, uh, the college that I had founded, um, I was really fascinated by this, and as we began to understand um, these natural phenomena, these um, gases that exist in our world, it became clear that our own body produced them. Uh, um, and if one was to um, withhold or hold in all of those gases, one could explode. But uh, more interestingly and more importantly is we don't know what is good. So what had happened is I had write a written a series of essays about the fact that I believe, and I've become more and more convinced, that lead is very dangerous, and that ingesting lead, or eating off of lead, or even handling lead, and remember I'm a printer, so I've spent most of my life handling lead type, um, is very dangerous, and, but nobody knows it. Everybody just, so we don't know what we don't know. So we believe that farting, for example, is, um, is 
unsavory or inappropriate, but what if it isn't? What if, like lead, it is something, what if farting makes the, the gases that surround our planet, our, our, our cities, um, more clean? What if everything we believe, I'll give you another example. People believe that sailors, no, no, forgive me, people believe that, um, that the common cold, getting a cold, is caused by being wet and cold. But sailors are always wet and cold. And they're the healthiest people you'll ever meet. So everything, so maybe being wet and cold does not cause the cold. Maybe being wet and cold, what we think is the cause of the cold, is in fact the cure for the cold. So maybe farting is exactly what our country needs. <laughs> so if you're going to do it, do it proudly. You're a big fan of sleeping with the window open. I am. And I also, is it true you do air baths? I do, every morning. Uh, it started when so, I was in Can England. you describe them? Well, I was living in England right in the middle of town, and I, um, and I believe in... in um, I've become a great believer, this goes back to the common cold, um, that the cause of being um, sickly is um, breathing in one another's transpirations. So being locked up in a small um, room, like with John or in a, in a carriage, um, is our cause. So fresh air is the cure. I've also um, been an avid swimmer my entire life. I almost became a swim instructor um, when I was in England. So every morning, so as I became more successful and had less time and more friends around the world to write letters to, I began a regime in the morning where I would wake up every morning and I would have a small breakfast, a cup of coffee, and then I would go to my front window and I would stand there nude, naked, with the window open with two small dumbbells and I would lift them for an hour and eventually I would have two secretaries standing behind me and nice. I would dictate letters to both of them <laughs> simultaneously so and at the same time I'm receiving exercise I'm doing my breathing it's a first and, first floor window too right well the best part is then you also get to know your neighbor <laughs> so you're so you're standing there and your neighbors can go by and I, they can say why look it's Benjamin Franklin and his penis and um, and that's nice so you think about how many things I was accomplishing at one time exercise Fresh air, um, a neighborly goodness, neighborly goodness. being yeah. Yeah. open yeah. and honest, Frank. Yeah. 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 There's nothing more Frank creeping than, out um, the secretaries, being naked. Yeah, you were you were connecting with your, your the people around you in a very unique way. And it was the sort of neighborhood where that sort of thing. Well, if they minded, they never nobody ever complained right. directly to me. Right. You're actually in the International Swimming Hall of Fame, right? I am in the International Swimming Hall of Fame. That is true. In fact, I was um, invited down there. The, um, the mayor of the city, um, it was very odd that it's happening in, Sp in a Spanish territory, but last uh, February, the mayor of the city of Fort Lauderdale, um, New Spain, Florida, they call it, um, <laughs> proclaimed it Benjamin Franklin Day, and they had me down and, and feted me throughout the town, and it's... Um, it had, when I was a very young boy in Boston, I told you about being in the, in the pond all the time, there were uh, soldiers. This was before I hated the British, and I used to, as a boy, I thought all the British soldiers were very fancy, and they would have essays and pamphlets, and I was always stealing them and borrowing them and buying them off them. And um, one of them was an essay called The Art of Swimming by a man named Thivenot. And Thiveneau had come up with this idea that if you took paddles and used them on your hands, you could create resistance in the water, and that would make it harder to swim, and, um, 
and a better exercise. And I imagine that those same paddles could actually be used to enlarge your hands and feet and make it easier to swim. So I took Thiveno's idea and I turned it into an aid to make one swim faster. And that has become the swim flipper and that contribution. And hand flippers, right? That's right, hand flippers. It's Imagine like a painter's palette. It didn't work very well, but it was a nice idea and apparently have inspired others. I have a lot of bad ideas that would eventually inspire other people to come up with better ideas. Well, let's talk about one of your most insane ideas, which is that if you sent a kite up in the middle of a thunderstorm with electricity attached, with a key attached, you could generate electricity. I have the key. You want me to yeah, uh, sure. Oh, here I can... Uh, that was the key. That's for, um, that's for our listeners at home, yes. Well, no, but this is an interesting point. You mentioned earlier um, about children and having children. If you're ever going to perform an ex- a dangerous experiment, um, you don't want... So, for example, if you're going to fly a kite with metal on either side of its string at the top and the bottom um, in, a, in a lightning storm, you don't want to just stand out there and, because it's very dangerous. And if you hire someone to do it and they get injured they'll sue you. So what you want to do is use your own children um, in dangerous experiments. So, Johnny, if you're ever going to perform a dangerous experiment, um, that's what the boy is for. Uh, What's the process from from the idea popping into your head to it actually being, you know, done? Letters, friends. Mm. Uh, Junta Juvant. Um, Join together, they assist. Um, and and um, to some extent, obsession. So we talk about the electrical experiments. <clears throat> Excuse me. I received... So I had been sending... The, a friend of mine was a botanist. Anybody can be a botanist. You know, just plant a seed in dirt and write down, you know, to get a pencil. Congratulations, you're a botanist. Um, but, um, but, sorry. But my Damn, friend, shout um, out the botanist. I mean, come on. No, no, but my friend John Bartram is a very good botanist. So John had been sending plants to another friend of ours in England, uh, Peter Collinson, and I was the sending the boxes of plants because I'm the deputy postmaster. And Peter sends this little electrical device, this Leyden jar. It's called Leyden jar. And, um, and from receive, and let's say I received that in 1749, 1748. And from receiving that little jar to my publication originally of my observations on electricity in 1752-53, um, it was just three, four years, but it was obsessive. I mean, I, I started by saying we need to store this electricity. We need to create a device to store it. And that's where we came up with the idea of the electrical storage device, what I call a battery. Then I had to share that because my battery was terrible. It didn't work well at all. Um, and it was very dangerous. I could, yes, I could turn a spindle, a roasting spit over a, um, a fire for 45 minutes, useful, but it did, but if you touched it, you'd die. So I started sending diagrams and and descriptions back to the Royal Society in England, but then I had made a friend through the mail, through correspondence. You know, in my day, we can write a letter, and it can get to England in eight weeks' time. It's really rather remarkable how quickly we're communicating. (laughs) What's that cost you? What's what's it cost at the post office for that? I'm the postmaster. Uh, I never pay for a (laughs) stamp. It's it's one of the benefits of being postmaster. Postmaster throughout their life never has to pay for stamps. It's why I will correspond with over 19,000 people in my life. Um, I'll write letters to anyone. Doesn't cost me anything. Uh, Mozart. I wrote letters to Mozart. He didn't write back, but it was... Um, anyway, the point is that, um, that there was a man in Italy, in Milano, named Alfonso uh, Volta. 
And Volta was this wonderful instrument maker, and he's the man who said, oh, this battery you've come up with is terrible. I'll invent a better one. And he came up with a better design for it, and now I can actually do things with it. So had I not come up with a terrible design, sent my terrible design to a much better instrument maker, who then came up with the Voltatic Pile, a really useful battery, um, we would have never been able to perform the next set of experiments. All told, I performed 130 separate experiments. And there's a word for that. Um, when you come up with something that is bad and inspire someone else to come up with something better, we call that El Dolce Experimento, the beautiful experiment in honor of Signore Volta. So you have to. Story. You have to be. <laughs> no <sort> kidding. <laughs> you got great it. stories, man. You, so, you gave me the beer. <laughs> <laughs> Is it true you never patented any of your uh, inventions? Uh, yeah, I, had I well, one I was. I don't really think any of my inventions are inventions, um, in the sense that they're generally improvements. Um, I didn't invent eyeglasses, spectacles. They were invented 200 years before me. I simply found a way to improve them. Um, but the very first thing I really created to give to the world to be useful was what something I called the Pennsylvania stove. I had seen this German stove. It didn't work very well. I reworked it. I redesigned it. Um, and it turned out that I had created something that was so efficient that you could burn 20% less wood and get the same amount of heat. That's an incredible benefit. Um, but I didn't need to build them. I didn't need to sell them. I just wanted people to have them. And at that point in my life when I did that, this was again in the seven, late 1740s, early 1750s, I had been retired from business about 10 years. And my almanac... Um, not my newspaper, not my essays, not my publishing, but specifically my almanac, poor Richard Saunders' almanac, had been so successful, it had sold so many copies that I had far more money than I would ever need in a, in a dozen lifetimes. Um, and I wasn't going to leave any money to my son or daughter, and I did not. And so when I passed... Why is that? Uh, they, they all have enough of their own. They're grown people, and my money can be a better benefit. I'll leave all of the money. I'll leave them some land and some papers and some properties, but all the cash will go to the cities of Boston and the cities of Philadelphia to benefit future apprentices. And um, I believe that the money you left for Philadelphia finally was made available 1990, in 1990. 200 years, yeah. yeah, 1990, in the uh, two centuries. I yeah. thought a lot. I wrote a lot about <laughs> two centuries, about yeah. the idea of being born two centuries later and how two centuries later would think back on us and how we could look forward and how they would look back. But that's right. I took uh, about 60,000 pounds and I left it to the city of Boston and about 60,000 pounds and left it to the city of Philadelphia to be held in trust for two centuries. And then both trusts were opened and it turned out the city of Boston had about three, four times more money in their trust than the city of Boston. Philadelphia might be a better city, but Boston has better accountants. Right. But <laughs> then after we won Super Bowl 52, they had to give us all the money, right? Is that how that worked? You know, we have a game here called Town Ball. Uh. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've uh, made some improvements I upon hear that. Why do you play Town Ball? I once played in a game of lacrosse, but two people died. In my day, <laughs> most bear baiting is very popular. In my day, I have to say, most sports... Except for um, there's a new sport called golf in Scotland that's very popular that I've tried. And there's a game called lawn tennis in Paris, which in Versailles, which I've tried. And, except, and there's a game called um, 
called um, handball at, that they play at the University of Oxford that's interesting. But except for those exceptions, uh, most sporting events are considered most entertaining um, when they include some threat of death. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So your games of chance and your sporting events don't have enough <laughs> death in them for people of my time. It makes a good point. Thank you. All right, are we ready to, are we going to get to the blunt? Sure. Yeah, All sure. Right. All right, okay, we're get to this f- is where I have to answer questions quicker. Correct, yes. <laughs> I can't really get any slower. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, All right. Yeah. So the way Please the don't try. Yeah, the Philly Blunt works is it's rapid-fire questions, rapid-fire answers. All right. So, Greg, you want to lead us off? Yeah, so we all know you wrote under female pseudonyms. Mm. So, of Polly Baker, Alice Addertong, Celia Shortface, Shortface. Martha Careful, Shortface? Busy Body, or Silence Do Good, which is your favorite? Polly Baker is really interesting. Polly Baker was a, um, was, seen, was a prostitute who stood up in front of court in Boston and testified that though she had six different children from six different husbands, she should not be considered a criminal, but rather a hero. And why that's interesting is, one, I had been a great advocate for the idea that women should be allowed to testify in court, which they could not. And two, 40 years after I wrote it, people in France believed it was true. That it had actually happened, so probably Polly. So, uh, no offense, I mean we know you're super intelligent, but this is the speed. Oh round. right, right, yeah. right. <laughs> that was as quick as my yeah. answers get. Go for that was favorite, pretty, pretty, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Favorite pretty place you've ever visited? Paris, uh, Passy, the the baths, the hot baths at Passy, outside Paris. Right. It's Friday night in Philadelphia. What's Ben Franklin getting into? No work, no no experiments. You're you you're, you're wilding out tonight. You're having some fun. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm one of the founders of the City Tavern, so I suppose I'm drinking spruce ale and toasting my friend General Washington at the City Tavern. True or false? 1785, you're the richest person in America. I would have no way of knowing. I don't know what anybody else has. TMZ reports that. (laughs) I'll I'll put it to you this way. And if you were a lawyer in London in the 1780s and you earned 200 pounds a year, you would be extremely successful. You would be a wealthy, successful man with a country house, 200 pounds a year. Um, I, my almanac was earning me 2,000 pounds a year and I published it for about 15 years. Wow. Fill in the that blank. That wasn't humble. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> fill in the blank. The best part of being me is blank. Um, uh, longevity. My father will live to be, what, 84 of 85. My mother will be to live 89, my sisters and brothers. I have a good chance of living well into my 80s or beyond. <laughs> Favorite instrument? Oh, the harmonica, the glass oh, harmonica that we I go. invented. I'm a good violinist um, and a pretty good guitar player, but no, the glass harmonica. And you know, the glass harmonica, harmonica has had, you know, people thought it was, um, it, was, it was dangerous, that it caused brain fever, and then Antoine Mesmer believed that he tried to convince people it could cure blindness, but in your day, the glass, so nobody played it. They thought it caused brain <laughs> fever and could kill you. They thought it was some sort of medical instrument, but in your day, the glass harmonica has had a great resurgence mm-hmm. all through um, one song um, that uses it very successfully and it's about a boy witch 
It's, everything comes full circle. What is this song? It's a, it's a, it's a entertaining some sort of theater that is about a boy who learns how to be a witch oh, in an oh, English Harry Potter school. Yes, that's it. I couldn't remember what it was called. Harry, we're, we're quick here. Harry on the Potter. <laughs> Harry Potter has used the, brought the glass harmonica back into the forefront. Uh, so there's a in the battle of hipsters. Are you a Fishtown hipster team or East Passion hipster team? I grew up in South Boston, you know, but now I live right on the market, right at Third and Market. I am in the middle of Old City. Um, I like being on the market. I like Saturday mornings at 6 a.m. hearing the bustle and the fishmongers. Wherever it is busiest, that is where you'll probably find me in a quiet spot under a tree sitting and thinking and pondering, but right with as much activity around me as possible. What bad habit are you trying to break? Well, my doctor, Benjamin Rush, recommends frequent tobacco for uh, my pleurisy, for all of the lungs and all of my, and I'm not sure that that's doing as much good as he seems to think (laughs) it is. So perhaps tobacco. Uh, Which kid did you like better? Sally. (laughs) <laughs> that wasn't even, that's not even hard. Sarah, we call Sarah my daughter Sally. Sally. Sarah is everything that a man would want. She was dedicated to the cause. She is intelligent. She is good with a needle. She's, uh, she has good ears. She speaks French. Sally is everything a father would Your like. Your son wasn't a... My son, son is um, nothing to me. <laughs> I, will leave, I, will get, I own a worthless island off of Canada called Halifax, and my son will You own Halifax? <laughs> I do. I own Halifax. Well, so my son will live in Halifax. It's all I'm going to give him (laughs) after he um, is imprisoned by General Washington. And as far as I know, one of the only other residents on the island is the former commandant of Philadelphia, a man by the name of General Benedict Arnold. So I think Mr. William, Governor William Franklin and General Benedict Arnold will be very happy together on that cold, worthless island. Sorry, sorry, residents of Halifax. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, overrated? I always told Thomas Jefferson not to contradict anyone. And so um, I should not insult the young man. He's 27, 30 years younger than me. Um, He's a very good writer, if only he believed more of what he wrote. Something people are surprised to learn about you. Um, Something, I don't know. People have spent a lot of time learning a lot of things about me. Um, I almost, you know, I gave a lot of money to a lot of churches. Um, I never really attended very much. But one thing people might not know is that not only did I donate a lot of money to the to the the temple here in Philadelphia, that is to say the. the children of the stock of Abraham, but I helped build a hall here in Pennsylvania, and at its dedication, I announced that the hall would be of perfect use for a Muslim, that if any Muslim, if any Iman or Mufti ever came to Philadelphia, he would be welcome to hold services here, and I had hoped to see that possible. So I think people are somewhat surprised to find out that I am very interested in how people get faith, but I really don't believe that Catholicism Christianity or Judaism or Islam are a a wrong way that all directions towards humility and virtue is correct. From what you know of our world, how do you think you would feel or fit in here in this day and time? Well, I have sometimes wished it had been my destiny to be born centuries after. Um, That would satisfy my curiosity, but it's... 
I have to remain content in knowing that I cannot gleam the future. But since I cannot know what it is like to live at your time, perhaps you, the descendants of us, will glance from time to time back in my direction. All right. Well, well, uh, I think that's a pretty good way to place can to wrap a, it up. Can I ask you one more? All right, one more. <laughs> you know, I got to go right, there. Geez. Betsy Ross or Martha Washington? Oh, my goodness. Martha Washington hates me. <laughs> General, I mentioned, you mentioned Tom. You know, I've become president of an anti We don't even use the word. We ter- use the term um, free Africans unlawfully held in bondage. Um, free Africans unlawfully held in bondage. General Washington can talk about these things. Um, um, Martha cannot. And so she has asked mutual friends of ours to no longer invite me to parties that she is in attendance. Damn, Martha? Martha Washington, over time, has come to despise me. Well, screw her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But Betsy, I think I might owe her money. So um, it's it's, it's a toss-up. (laughs) <laughs> all right. Well, we want to. Uh, we need to go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, we want to thank you guys for all coming out here yeah, this afternoon and supporting uh, Philly Podcast. If you've not checked us out before, it's the Philly Blunt. Uh, we interview interesting people around the city of Philadelphia every couple of weeks. Uh, it is the Philly got to Blunt. Me eventually, yeah, got to Ben. Yeah, eventually Ben made made the list right after John Balleris. So uh, <laughs> I'm the first weatherman. Right. I'm the first weatherman. Right, right, right. So uh, we interview people all across uh, the spectrum of Philadelphia. Um, we've uh, talked to Feminista Jones. We've talked to uh, Bolaris. We just uh, interviewed the founder of Rough House Records. So we've got a, a really interesting group of people. Uh, we talked to the biggest Coke dealer on the East Coast in the early 80s. So it's an interesting group of people on the podcast if you want to check it out. Uh, <laughs> no, no, 1980s, not 1780s. Uh, if you want to check it out, that is thephillyblunt.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, uh, and Facebook at the Philly Blunt as well. So I want to thank everybody for coming out. And let's give it up up for for Mr. Ben Ben Franklin. Huzzah! Yeah. Huzzah to me. All right. Take it light. Peace. Huzzah. Brotherly love, brothers covered in blood, the man's office is covered in bugs, the youth dreams cut short.